You're listening to God and Comics, the show that only gets better the longer you've been in quarantine and without human contact. <laughs> On today's show, we discuss Gene Luen Yang's graphic novel for kids, Superman Smashes the Clan, and we'll look at how the book tackles issues of racism, self-identity, and hope. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I am chaplain at St. John the 23rd College Preparatory in Katy, Texas. On the line with me is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm the rector of St. George's Episcopal Church in Schenectady, New York. And also on the line is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I am the rector of Church of the Messiah Episcopal Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay. Uh, good to see you guys. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna jump into the recommendation here. Um, incidentally, uh, this is a fluke, I think, uh, but I end up doing the recommendation and the this or that for this episode. So I think that's the first time that's ever happened, um, which means I don't need to do either of those things ever again. I'm pretty sure that's <laughs> what that means. Um, but what I want to recommend. So, uh, longtime listeners of the program know that I am a great fan of the Bill and Ted franchise. Love me some Bill and Ted. And uh, recently, actually, Bill and Ted's third movie, finally, uh, the, the finishing of the trilogy, uh, came out in theaters and on demand. It's called Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, and it's it's wonderful, and I got to write a, a little review uh, of it for Alatea. We'll put a link to that on the show page. Um, but in honor of uh, Bill and Ted making their triumphant return to the screen after almost 30 years away, uh, I thought that I would recommend uh, a Bill and Ted comic uh, because there have been numerous Bill and Ted comic stories uh, over the years. And, and I love whenever there's a new one. And this is one that came out, uh, I think, three or four years ago. Uh, but I, I read at the beginning of this year. It was actually the last thing I read before quarantine started. And it is called Bill and Ted Go to Hell. Bill and Ted Go to Hell. Uh, and it's by... Um, it is by, I'm looking for his first name here, because they just put his last name on the cover of the book. Here it is, Brian Joins, I think is how you say that, J-O-I-N-E-S, with art by uh, Bakken, B-A-C-H-A-N. This whole episode, uh, folks, just strap in, because it's just going to be me mispronouncing people's names over and over again. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's... It's really, uh, if you love uh, Bill and Ted uh, and you love just silly, um, bizarre stories, this is a great one. Uh, it takes place um, not long after uh, Bill and Ted's uh, bogus journey, uh, so the, the second film that came out in 1991. Um, and in that film... Bill and Ted had had uh, journeyed to heaven and hell, and they had met Death, who then, of course, joined the band eventually, and um, you know all sorts of craziness had ensued. Well, in this new story, um, uh, it's not uh, you know 
not terribly long after all of that. Um, and Death is kidnapped. At the beginning of the book, we see Death being kidnapped, and we don't know who's done it. Uh, but all of a sudden, uh, these figures from hell, these, these characters that, that Bill and Ted had met in hell, uh, show up in the real world. And this uh, frightens Bill and Ted, and they're, they're thinking something has gone wrong here. We've got to go down to hell and investigate. And so with the help of uh, Missy, um, who used to be married to Bill's father, and then divorced him and married Ted's father, and then in this book she has divorced him and married Chuck Nam Namaloff, Namalas? Is that how you say that? Namalas? The, 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 basically, yeah, yeah, the bad guy from uh, Bogus Journey. She's married to him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but she does a seance of some sort and gets them uh, down to hell. And, um, and they uh, realize what a big deal this is going to be. So before they go down there, they contact their old buddy Rufus. And Rufus basically has them uh in a sense get the band back together they go around and they collect all these historical figures who they are friends with uh, from excellent adventure so your abraham lincoln is in this one your socrates is in this one uh your uh, uh your joan of arc right it, you know makes an appearance in this one uh and they all uh, billy the kid as well and they all go down to hell and they discover when they get there that Satan is chained up. Somebody has taken over hell and uh, displaced Satan in the process. Uh, and, well, who could do such a thing? Well, it turns out uh, only one person could possibly do it, and they realize it when they see that hell has been turned into a water slide. That one person is, of course, Napoleon. That's right. Napoleon <laughs> has taken over hell. And so Napoleon becomes the bad guy in this whole story. And it, and it just, you know, it, it just goes crazy from there. They go to heaven again. They, they're in hell again. Uh, they end up having to fight with their own sons. Um, so uh, if, if you've seen the third movie, you know that um, uh, Little Bill and Little Ted... Uh, were actually girls. They never said their gender in the in the second movie, uh, so you know it's it's possible. Uh, so that's clearly that's canon now because that's what the movies have said. Uh, but this was before that when this book came out, and so they they have sons in the book um, who are are babies, but they get sped up to become like adults, and then they end up fighting with their parents. And uh, you know, it's just. <laughs> it, it's just a wacky, fun, uh, good time that you don't need to have a lot of brain power to enjoy, um, but that also doesn't insult your intelligence. Um, and so I enjoy it. I highly recommend it. Bill and Ted uh, go to hell. It's funny that book just came across my path not, not too long ago. I haven't read it, but I, the title just floated across this week. Um, I have not seen a Bill or Ted movie in, gosh, years. I mean, I saw the first one in the theater when it came out, although uh, that was on a date in eighth grade. So, <laughs> you know, I was a little distracted. 
Oh, but, nice. Yeah, it'd kind of be cool to see them again. Yeah, I you know I talked about this in the review I did for uh, Face the Music that um, I was actually not allowed to see it when it came. I was I was nine when when the first one came out, and the reputation of that movie was that it was uh, vulgar, which is not really if you actually watch it, it's not terribly vulgar. I mean comparatively, and uh, you know it's actually the series is actually very sweet. And so the irony is, uh, you know, now here we are 30 years later with a new Bill and Ted film, and it's actually the opposite of the vulgarity of the culture that we now live in. It's, you know, it's a much, a much sweeter thing, you know, about these two guys and their, their friendship that continues to, to endure. So, but, but with a lot of wackiness uh, as well. Okay, well, we turn now to our main conversation uh, on Superman Smashes the Clan, and we're joined by uh, some regular guests uh, on the program, Alexi Sargent and Leah Labresco Sargent. Uh, they are both writers, thinkers, uh, gosh, like there's a whole list of things that they are. Um, I, we, parents. We, parents right so we've we may get maybe we'll get a little beatrice in the background at some point that would be that would be lovely um they're they're theater nerds i don't know we'll 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 do a whole program at some point where we'll just say all the things that that uh, alexi and leah do <laughs> um leah's most recent book is building the benedict option a guide to gathering two or three together in his name uh, Alexi is also the creator of several games, including No Holds Barred, Enemy of the Revolution, and one I'm very interested in called Autumn Triduum, which is described as a role-playing, storytelling game about religious sisters confronting the forces of darkness from All Hallows' Eve to All Souls' Day. That sounds amazing and bizarre. So... You know, look forward to that. Um, so, Alexi and Leah, welcome back to God and Comics. Could you tell us a little bit maybe about Autumn Triduum? Because I'm I'm very fascinated by... Uh, I, I, get, I read, read the description for everybody, um, but I'm sort of fascinated by this. Yeah, uh, I am too. Uh, it's, a, it's a game I'm developing uh, that... Uh, is a, a role-playing game where you play as religious sisters. Uh, it takes place over the three days of All Hallows' Eve to All Saints' Day to All Souls' Day. So it's got a, you know, it's got a very particular structure to it, but within that structure, you're playing out a story and discovering uh, how these religious sisters come together to defend their convent from the forces of darkness, uh, rallying to renounce Satan and all his works. And, and a good time is had by all. That's the hope. Yeah, I've gotten to play it with uh, a bunch of folks, you know, uh, religious gamers, uh, gamers of no particular faith, and people have often had a good time, you know, whatever their, um, whatever their experience is coming in, uh, just, you know, weaving these stories that I hope are uh, uplifting ones about, you know, spiritual warfare and with yeah, the triumph of good over evil. Well, I love it. I think it sounds awesome. I sort of wonder what the Dominican sisters who teach at my school would think of it. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully they run it for them. If, uh, if, 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 uh, they interested. Yeah. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll ask them and we'll see. 
We'll see what they say. We're we're gathered to uh, to talk about Superman Smashes the Clan by Jean Luen Yang, um, and uh, it's a, a a really interesting interesting book that I think yields a lot of uh, good stuff for on, for us to chew on, especially at the the moment in time that we're we're in in our our society. Maybe, uh, Alexi, could you maybe say a, a word or two um, to get us started just thinking about Jean Luen Yang and who he is? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Jean Luen Yang is a uh, Chinese-American creator of comic books. He's a, he's a writer and artist. Um, you know, uh, probably first game came to prominence with the American-born Chinese, uh, a graphic novel, and uh, some of his other major works include work on the Avatar The Last Airbender comic book line, uh, Boxers and Saints, a paired set of graphic novels set during the Boxer Rebellion um, that also touches on religious themes. Uh, he wrote uh, he wrote for uh, DC Comics doing both Superman and New Superman, and he's slated to write Shang-Chi for Marvel kind of in advance of the film adaptation of that character. He's going to be doing the uh, the comic series perhaps of particular interest to uh, listeners of god and comics uh, i'm looking here at the wikipedia page and i see that yang also created a rosary comic book uh way back in 2003 oh, telling the stories behind the mysteries of the rosary so that is pretty fascinating i'm gonna have to track that down myself i've really enjoyed a lot of gene luen yang's uh work and i'm not the only one because uh he uh, he received a uh MacArthur Genius Fellowship, uh, one of the relatively few, you know, graphic novelists or creators of comics to receive that uh, that particular fellowship. That's very cool, and and you've you've already alluded to another uh, sort of piece of information about him, which is that he's Catholic, and uh, that does you know come out um, in his writing. You mentioned Boxers and Saints, which is a really wonderful story that that has certainly has um, faith elements in it. And, uh, and and I think uh, you know some of that, uh, maybe not tremendously explicitly, but there's some of that certainly that comes out um, in Superman Smashes the Clan as well. So um, what what an interesting even just idea for a book. Superman Smashes the Clan, uh, a book about uh, Superman, about uh, racism, about violence uh about uh, identity and it's of course written for children because that's the first thing you think when you hear all of this <laughs> uh, but it but it does actually work all together like that uh, father matt maybe could you say a word about the the plot of of this uh of this book yeah um i i believe it's it's based on a, a radio show from 1946, uh, a series of broadcasts on the Adventures of Superman show, uh, Clan and the Fiery Cross. And I haven't heard that. I don't know how similar um, the plot is, but the um, the comic book uh, it centers around a Chinese-American family, uh, the Lee family. And um, the father has uh, gotten a new job uh, in the metropolis health department and so they move from uh, metropolis's chinatown district out to the suburbs and uh, no sooner do they arrive um but they experience uh, racism in, in the form of 
intimidation by the Klan. There's also um, uh, some other stories that run alongside that 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 primary theme. Um, there's a community house where where the children hang out and play baseball called Unity House. It's run by um, synagogue and a Protestant church and a Roman Catholic church. And um, and there's also the subplot with Superman himself and flashbacks to him as a child as he uh, wrestles with his own identity as as an alien, as a, as a stranger in a strange land. And he discovers sort of uh, his his powers as they as they unfold um but the main the main topic there is the uh the battle with the klu klux klan um or the klan and the fiery cross as they call it in in, in the book right very carefully uh renamed i think uh probably less important that they be renamed for uh for um the purposes of this book it's more the renaming here is probably more of a, an homage, but in the in the radio series, uh, they were called the Clan of the Fiery Cross because the Ku Klux Klan was a an incorporated entity, uh, and so they you know they didn't want to get sued, and so they changed the name. But it was very obvious who they were talking about, right? Yeah. You know? Oh, every, so. everyone could tell, and indeed the uh, the Superman radio serial is in you know has historical significance because by setting up the clan as enemies of Superman, it did a lot to tarnish their brand. People were like, Oh, these people are enemies of Superman and a little ridiculous. I guess, I guess they're not people we want to associate with. Mm. <laughs> if only it were that simple today, we could just, <laughs> anybody who Superman came out against, that's, that's who you want to stay away from. Um, so so what do we think uh what just first thoughts first impressions uh what do we want to say about this book did you all like it what is it that you that you get out of it maybe we'll start with father kyle what's what what would you say about it i, I like the story i thought it was a very well written story i like that it had uh, a lot of feel of a, a, a radio program still um mm. even though it's an update and an expansion on the radio program itself um, it had elements of the Superman, the early Superman character from the way that the costume was drawn and, um, and the way that some of the characters were drawn. It doesn't feel necessarily stuck in the 1940s, although it's clear that they're trying to incorporate elements of the 1940s into the story, but it also has a bit of a modern feel. Certainly the dialogue of the story is not as, um, as stilted as some of the <laughs> writing of the 1940s tended to be it's a little more fluid and and modern day but i thought it was a very good story it's, it's um easy to read and uh and i think as you noted before it's geared toward a younger audience the back of the book says it's a graphic novel for young adults and i think um it works well for that department and for grown adults as well one thing I think is really extraordinary here from Luan Yang, and I think is a pattern in his writing, is that oh, he tells the story about people exploring heroism or trying to be heroes without them always being very pleasant to be around. Um, and, you know, as part of a, a habit of growth and virtue that takes time, you know, everything from, you know, uh, a young kid who's involved with the clan of the Fiery Cross, who takes his first steps towards rejecting it, but 
you know, first steps aren't very much from the point of view of someone who's being targeted. And we really face that problem a lot nowadays, which is when you're trying to get someone to leave a hateful ideology, how do you respond to kind of their first stirrings of doubt or their first moves towards an exit when they're still incredibly hateful at that period? Um, and our protagonist, Roberta, you know, is struggling with faults of a much milder nature, but, you know, really really struggles to find friends and then, you know, struggles with her own culpability in that. Is she rejecting people before they can reject her? Um, and how much of this problem is something that's totally external to her versus something she has the ability to make a choice about. So I think, I think Jean Lu and Yang is just unafraid to make complicated protagonists and even supporting characters and to, you know, have them live rich moral lives that aren't going to end at the end of this story. And I appreciated the depiction of Superman in this story, because uh, in some ways, you know, it's it's tricky telling a story where Superman changes, right? Because Superman is this, this ideal character, right? Uh, this paragon. Um, but Yang kind of sets this early in Superman's career and has Superman, you know, even though a very admirable figure, still be a struggling figure, someone working through his own you know, understanding of and feelings about being an immigrant, right? Being, in this case, an alien from Krypton, but an immigrant, you know, who who passes as as white, passes as human, uh, but has this element of his background that's very different, right? That's, that's, you know, a totally different culture, and how does he feel about that? And so, of course, that's set up as a sort of parallel to the uh, to the Lee's uh, journey, to especially Roberta's, uh, but it's you know a different type of being an immigrant. Like the uh, the these are different immigrant experiences being highlighted, and um, and I think Superman's a really fascinating character to do that through. And this book even starts with the Superman who's only using some of his powers, right? A Superman who's strong and fast and can leap tall buildings in a single bound, but but doesn't fly, right? You know, isn't using heat vision, and so part of the book is about you know, uh, discovering what uh, what makes him super uh, that's not all immediately present. And so there's room for Superman to grow in this story. And I think it's well handled. I, I love the way Superman gets around in this book. You know, he's since he can't fly yet, he, he runs across the telephone wires. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if that's from... I went back and I kind of peeked at some of the older... Uh, Superman books, and I don't know. I didn't see him running running across telephone wires, but that might have been early on something that they had uh, Superman do to get around. And I, I thought that he was did. pretty charming. I was just going to say, yeah, <laughs> it's, were, a, it's an yeah. amazing choice because he does it partly so he can stay out of people's way. And I think in a lot of ways, this is a story about you know when staying out of people's way or making yourself smaller in order not <sighs> to bother people it could be the wrong choice yeah it's it's a really smart um you know uh, i mean i was joking before about it not um you know how how funny it is to think about a book that the primary plot of which is fighting against um racist violence and stuff like that uh would be for kids and yet the, he does such a great job of weaving together the story of um, Roberta and Tommy and they're getting used to knowing who they are not just because they're uh, Chinese Chinese American kids growing up in in this uh, city um, but uh, but because they're kids right because they're young people and so 
they're going through that kind of discovery that young people all go through but with this added dimension of like feeling like an alien which i think is also a pretty common experience you know uh, i mean spending a lot of time around young people this is this is a pretty common experience uh that you know i think uh, uh kids have um and then combining that with superman having his own experience uh, of basically the same thing of the same kind of growth and alienation it really uh pulls you into this story um in a way that is really accessible for for almost anybody and i think also when people wonder you know how is it you can tell a story that's appropriate for kids about racism you know that kind of presumes when you ask that question that racism would be unknown to the kids but for the story and of course for a lot of folks that's not the case um so it reminds me more of you know gk chesterton's comment that you know children need fairy tales not because they need to know about dragons but they need to know that dragons can be slain and that you know in the same way children need stories about racism so they have stories that aren't just about unremitting hatred but what it takes to persist in hope and in love and how it could be possible for someone to turn away from hate I love the way they show Tommy and Roberta, who are the the lead children, wrestle with fitting in in different ways. Tommy, it really like kind of you know is extroverted and like uh, knows how to like play off his his racial identity for laughs and, and and things like that, which upsets his 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 sister. And um, you know, there's of course the overt hateful racism of the clan of the fiery cross but then throughout the book we also see this kind of like benevolent racism too directed towards them like uh you know some of the comments that the kids make like oh um you know you chinese are so brave and and uh hard working you know and it pick, picks up on some of the you know the chinese were like contrasted to the japanese at that mm-hmm. time the Japanese were, of course, enemies. The Chinese, it, it, by contrast, were presented as as sometimes extremely upstanding people. You have some of that play in there too, and it's not it's not hateful. It's you know these are friendly folks, but there's like these stereotypes and and kind of things that they have to wrestle with, that overcome to be real people to their neighbors. That same otherness that these are not pointing out to somebody that they're not the norm and, mm. and kind of sticking them in a category. Yeah, absolutely. How do we see uh how do we see this in terms of what it what it can say to us in this um kind of profound moment I think that that we've been in for for several months now especially in American life. You know, this book is is written before that. I think it was 2018, maybe, that it came out. Um, Obviously, uh, uh, racism, not a new thing. Uh, So there's always been plenty plenty to mine there and to think about. Uh, But I felt like, you know, reading this in 2020 somehow felt different than, than I think it would have felt to have read it in 2018. Um, I, I wonder if you all, any of you all feel similar. Well, well, sure. Yeah. Um, the racial tensions, of course, in, in our moment are pretty intense. And reading 
this book with that backdrop really brings it to life. And, and, and sort of some of the same rhetoric that they use in the book that are used by the Clan of the Fiery Cross or, or just the people, you know, uh, around them. Um, it's sort of re-emerging. There's this sort of nationalist sentiment and this, this or, or this idea that that these these group of people are fundamentally alien. That they are a threat to our uh, national identity. Um, that they can never be assimilated. That they could never really fit in. That they could never really belong. Um, and um, I, you know, I, I think that's still very much alive today, especially in the area of of, of how we deal with islamic folks who 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 live in our neighborhoods sort of like the the attitude that um that the chinese are are treated with is very familiar to modern readers you know this is a group of people that that um it's thought are fundamentally just do not belong in america and and the the sort of the fear and hysteria around that is very familiar yeah, I certainly think it, it's an apropos read for the moment. Um, I actually, as I read it, was thinking quite a bit about the stuff that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, which isn't too far away from me, um, where you know we're seeing clan-ish, if not outright clan activity um, at work today. So the problem is still there, um, very much alive. One of the things that really stuck with me from the book is that uh, there are kind of two different layers of antagonist here. That you have a grand scorpion, I think, who really just believes in racism, right? He's in it as a true believer. And he feels so betrayed when he finds out someone higher up in the organization than him is in it for the money, right? And doesn't really care about the fight they're part of, you know, and some of the, like, treasured heirlooms are just you know cheap knockoffs but they're selling them you know and making money off of people's hatred uh and he feels so betrayed because he thought of himself as a real soldier in a real war and to find out your general is a grifter i think that's very relevant to 2020 where you know it's it's one thing to to kind of act hatefully in what you believe is the defense of some real good and there I understand better what to appeal to than someone who doesn't mind that they're inflaming hatred without even believing in it, but just because it gives them power or brings them money. Which was interesting to read in light of what you're saying, Leah. It's interesting to read the bit in the back of the book where they go through the history of this serial, uh, the Superman serial, and they also talk quite extensively about the history of the Klan here in America and to see that um, what he's doing and writing things that way is actually echoing some of what happened in the early 1900s with the way that the Klan uh, kind of took root and grew, um, that it became a business of sorts almost and sought to attract a certain crowd of people who may not have been outwardly racist before but um, but the sense of camaraderie and fellowship that came through uh, being a part of that organization inflamed that stuff in them. Yeah, I really appreciated that essay in the back of the book because um, Yang really goes into some of his own his own childhood experience, right, of of Superman and of racism, 
uh, and he uh, he kind of talks through some of the uh, historical facts he's drawing on to uh, to tell this story for uh, um, for a contemporary audience, but but set in that period. Um, and so uh, I think that's a really nice inclusion in the uh, the full graphic novel here. Probably not something that was available in the uh, individual uh, uh, issues of the comics. Yeah, I, I I thought that was really great. That whole section. Um... Uh, really kind of served to highlight I learned uh, I learned a lot about um, you know I didn't I didn't even realize there had been an ex, uh, experience of the the clan being a, a threat to um, Asian Americans um, in in the way that he described um, I learned a bit about Superman as well which was was also uh, was also kind of nice um, I you know I think that um, one of the things that that we see over and over again um, in in history um, and particularly in American history is the way in which race and racial divisions are easily manipulated for other purposes for you know whether it's for the uh, somebody's political gain whether it's for financial gain whether you know like there's there, there just seems to be this way in which um playing on people's fears and kind of building that up uh is something that that seems to happen repeatedly in our story repeatedly in our history and one of the things that i've found really frustrating in some ways uh, to figure out how to to do i mean you know in some ways this there is a funniness about the fact that here we are you know a group of white people having this conversation um and you know we're not experienced you know we haven't experienced the kind of racism that um uh somebody who uh is not white uh would have necessarily um and yet i think you know one of the things that i run into um, from time to time is, is just people who, who find that, that the problem with racism and say, well, I'm not racist, you know, but the problem with racism is that you just focus on it too much. This is like white people will say this, right? Like you focus on it too much. If you didn't talk about it so much, it would just, it wouldn't exist. Right. But, but because we talk about race, somehow that like in and of itself creates the division and creates the tension like this is this is the thought process that um that a fair number of of white people go through and it's hard to figure out like like you really have to be able to step outside of yourself to see that uh, the, the the reason why you can you can say something like that is because you don't have to think about it Right, like, well, and I think Christians Christians have far less excuse to make this kind of mistake than mm -hmm. anyone else, uh, because I think one of the other kind of defenses people put up is that idea. Well, I'm not a racist; I'm a good person, and right. of course, for Christians, we both know that we are created in the image of God. We're made to be good people. We're made to be saints, and you know, each of us has sinned terribly, such that Christ would have had to be crucified just to redeem one of us. You know, He redeemed all of us, but. You know, if everyone else were good and it were just me, he would have done it out of love for me. And, you know, my sin would be serious enough. It would require a savior. 
And I think there's a real failure of catechesis when Christians can walk around saying, well, I'm not complicit in racism. I'm a good person, as though the world is divided into people who are basically fine and people who are unredeemably terrible, when in fact we should all remember that we're sinners and chief among them. Um, and once that's acknowledged, then the question isn't, is it terrible to admit that I might be complicit in something bad? The question is, I certainly am original sin to start with, and then a lot of other more specific applications of that sin. What do I do about it? Yeah, um, but you know the, the the criticism that I that I hear of of that, uh, Leah, is uh, for at least from Christians um, who who have a little more theological umph um, is is to say well you know that may very well be all be true but but pushing back against the notion of particularly the notion of systemic racism and this idea that well you know you're talking about um, individual accountability and that's one thing but can we say that there is such a thing as a sin in a society or can we say that there is such a thing as a sort of corporate responsibility for things that aren't necessarily my fault as an individual? And I think that's that's the way that that they would get back to that that thing that you just described of I'm a good person. They'd still be willing to say, yeah, I, I'm 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 a sinner, but that's not necessarily my sin. And, and maybe sometimes the way it's talked about is unhelpful because it sounds like almost like inherited guilt, mm -hmm. like, um, like, you know, my, um, your grandfather ate sour grapes and your teeth are set on edge. But, um, I don't think it's necessarily that I, I, I think it's, you know, we live in, uh, a culture and, uh, uh, you know, in various institutions that are, are shaped by a history of, of, of racism. And uh, we've all kind of, uh, it's in our drinking water. It's in the air that we breathe. It's like we all sort of um, internalize some of that just like through osmosis, you know? So it, 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 it's part of the world that we live in. And, and um, we live in a fallen world. The, the, the problem isn't just, um, my personal sin isn't just the flesh it's the world too and the devil um and, and and you know when when we talk about the world we talk about in in, in christian terms we talk about that you know network of, of wickedness that we're all kind of bound up in and that as christians we all are engaged in a battle with i i think it's an anemic uh, understanding of sin to just think of it as personal kind of uh you know false it's it's bigger than that it's it and it is systemic um and i think i think one kind of problem that comes up also is people talking is that the goal of the christian life is to figure out the minimum amount of virtue you're held to 
um, <laughs> where you know, so it's like, well, am I obliged to go this far? You know, there may be some injustice, but if I didn't have a personal role in creating it, am I really called to work on it? You know, it's like the inverse of the the discussions for teenagers dating. You know, exactly how far can you go before God gets <laughs> mad? Right? Exactly how little work can I do against racism? Can I do before God gets mad? Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, the the kind of you know, titanic call of the church to be part of the redemption of the world without as much of a question about exactly what role we played in its sundering. You know, it goes back to the early church fathers and isn't limited to race. You know, St. Basil the Great has a really frightening quote, uh, which is about poverty, not about race, when he says, the bread which you hold back belongs to the hungry. The coat which you guard in your locked storage chest belongs to the naked. The footwear moldering in your closet belongs to those without shoes. You know, however many are uh, those whom you could have provided for, so many are those whom you wrong. Mm. And that's that's not premised on the idea that you've personally stolen the coat or that you personally caused those people to be poor. It's that you could ameliorate it and choose not to. Mm -hmm. Am I my brother's keeper? Yep. Um, I, I personally think uh, that the answer to all of the world's problems is uh, just looking at cute babies. Because um, <laughs> it's really hard to like. We were having this conversation about racism, and uh, those of you, those of you who are listening in, don't you? You've been hearing Beatrice, but we can actually uh, see her, and uh, she's adorable. So, um, hope for the future. She's poking over mom's shoulder as she talks. <laughs> yes. Uh, T.K. Chesterton had an interesting passage about this. Um, when you you know when you say the solution to the world's ills might be cute babies, I feel like uh, I feel like this passage you know springs to mind for me. Um, uh, he uh, he observes the uh, the hair of a little girl. Uh, that's uh, that's that's been you know left uh, left dirty right and uh, and he he says you know uh, I began with a little girl's hair that I know is a good thing at any rate whatever else is evil the pride of a good mother and the beauty of her daughter is good it is one of those adamantine tendernesses which are the touchstones of every age and race if other things are against it other things must go down if landlords and laws and sciences are against it the landlords and laws and sciences must go down. With the red hair of one she urchin in the gutter, I will set fire to all modern civilization, uh, which is great. Uh, I, I love this passage, and I think it I think it works well as a uh, as a tie in here to you know, you know the fact that children should be our motive to make the world better, right? You know the the uh, the adamantine tenderness. That's great. The adamantine tenderness we feel you know for the very young should be a spur to uh, fix you know, uh, the, the problems and injustices and, uh, uh, ways that society falls short since that's what we're, we're leaving to them. Right. You Mm -hmm. know, their, their inheritance will be the, the world that, uh, that we help to create through our action or inaction. Yes. And speaking of which the, the, um, the, the heroes of this book, I mean, Superman's the hero, but he, uh, he sort of teams up with like a crew of kids. And, um, and 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 Roberta, who's who's a young girl, is um, just a wonderful character, and uh, you know, smart, spunky, 
uh, adorable. Um, but she and and her her brother, and interestingly enough, the nephew of one of the clansmen, um, kind of joined forces uh, along with the other kids from the Unity House. Don't uh, forget Jimmy Olsen and Jimmy Olsen, Jimmy Olsen. cup reporter for the uh, the Daily Planet. Um, and, and you know, I, I think it, that in itself is uh, there's a message to that. You know, I mean, the Unity House. You know, um, here we are uh, in the United States of America, and there's people from all over the world uh, of of different religious backgrounds, different ethnic identities, um, but they they join forces to uh, combat hate and to make their community better. Um, it's a that's a, that's a really positive message, and of course, you know, and to help Superman smash the clan. Yes, um, yeah. and and on that theme of unity, I just wanted to point out um, a part that really that really touched me. Um, so there is a um, you know a moment where uh, the clan, in trying to scare the Lee family, um, does what the clan does and burns a cross. Uh, on their on their front lawn um, and uh, they 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 get uh, scared off and and uh, and and it gets put out but um, passing by uh, is uh, there's a, a black police officer um, the name of that character I'm forgetting at this at this moment I think um, it's Inspector Henderson. There it is. Thank you, Inspector That's Henderson. What it is, yeah. And uh, so Inspector Henderson and uh, some of his friends who are off duty, they're out for the night, but um, but they they show up on the scene here, um, and they're having this sort of conversation because they're in this you know part of town too that isn't necessarily always friendly, apparently uh, to to. Um, uh, to black folks so inspector henderson tells his friends that they can go but he he's gonna he's gonna stick around and uh one of one of the friends is talking about people there and he says they don't they don't want us around not even when their house is on fire and uh inspector henderson says they got a burning cross on their lawn don't they for tonight at least they are us even if they don't want to admit it and i i just thought that was that little scene is is so powerful and and actually brought a tear to my eye you know the way in which even in the midst of um you know being undervalued in one way or another by a society you know you can see people kind of getting at odds with each other and yet there is this commonality that that is bred out of common suffering you know um that i think is really powerful and 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 yet interestingly enough and 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 sort of powerful commentary um dr lee uh the the roberta and and tommy's father kind of then he he responds sort of with hostility to their help right um you know there's this there's this, you know, unwillingness to be associated with, with the African American community. Sort of like, you know, um, no, you know, I'm trying to scratch out 
like a place for myself and I, and I want to be associated with, with the white people rather than you. Yeah, it's, it's it's understated because of course he's not the main character, but mm-hmm. uh, Doctor Lee's arc, you know, is this interesting little lens on you know basically respectability politics, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where um, you know he's uh, he, he's he's yeah he's initially suspicious of Inspector Henderson, not kind of uh, you know basically wants to to brush aside the um, uh, the 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 bigotry his family is experiencing and kind of you know continue. Um, you know his 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 attempt to integrate in metropolis involves like telling his kids and his wife not to speak chinese right like right. you know a, a real like drive to be just like the you know the mostly white surrounding community and you know and he goes through an arc uh in the book as well though he's not the the main character we're following but i think that's a an interesting aspect of the story you know it's it's powerfully symbolized too by uh, roberta's jacket Right. Mm -hmm. She has this old jacket that she's sort of worn her whole life. Um, And as soon as uh, they move out of Chinatown, like her parents take this jacket from her and they give her a new one, which is probably much nicer. But she's like, it smells like plastic. It's, you know, meaning it's like it's artificial. It's fake. It's not really me. And I'm supposed to cloak myself in this, you know, identity that's not really my own to begin with. Um, you know, I, I, I and I, well, she, she eventually ends up, uh, having a jacket made from Superman's cape, um, which, which in itself is pretty cool. Cause she, you know, aligns herself with, with Superman. Um, there's, there's so much that we could, that we could dig into in this, in this book. We could, we could do a whole series on it. I just want to make sure before we, we step away from it, though, that we do say something about uh, the art, since we've been mostly talking about the story. Um, so the art in this book is done, and I, I'm really not sure how to pronounce this. Gurihiru? Gurihiru? Something like Gurikiru that? Gurihiru is uh, how I believe I've, I've heard it said. They're a, they're a Japanese illustration team, a, a duo of, uh, of artists. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, that have worked on a number of American comics, including uh, the uh, the Power Pack comic from a little while ago from uh, from Marvel. Oh, yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, they bring a great kind of clean, cartoony style to this. I feel. Yeah, I I, I really uh, I really dug it, and it 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 manages to make it look um, to make it look old fashioned without feeling old fashioned, if that makes any sense. Like you really do feel like you're in the forties, but you, you don't feel like you're losing anything of the crispness of, uh, um, of something that you would, that would be created today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It has that kind of crisp look, you know, and, and I mean, even Superman's look partially draws on the Matt, Max, uh, Flesher kind of, um, if it, what's what's that his name the uh, the animated superman from the the 40s but um but he's more stylized and, um superman is like this huge figure that like his shoulders like are like busting out of the frame um but it also it it, it the artwork also just has just a touch of kind of a more um of a of, of a uh anime look to it just a dash um which adds adds another element to it as well um 
Yeah, I, I, it's very finely illustrated. Um, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to see the uh, other work of the, this this team of, uh, of illustrators. I haven't, I don't think I've experienced them before. Well, there, there's um, there's so much that we could say about this book. Uh, I'd love to know what uh, those of you in listener land think of it. Um, it. It sounds like we all kind of highly recommend it. Um, but uh, do let us know what you think. Um, hit us up on social media, tweet at us, uh, at God and Comics, or uh, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash God and Comics. Um, I know that uh, Miss Beatrice needs to, to, to get to bed soon. Um, do you all have time for a quick this or that? or, or... Yeah, we'll do a this or a that or a two. Quick. Yeah, this or that. Quick. Okay. All right. Well, let, let we'll, we'll we'll do it fast. Ready? Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, Alexi. Candy or cookies? Uh, cookies. Excellent choice. Thousand points. Okay. Uh, nice to have them freshly baked. Yes. Very good. Uh, Leah, this one is is very important. Okay. Um, arriving at Amen or arriving at Amen? Uh, oh shoot, now I'm double thinking it. Uh, arriving at a Amen, I think is what I say. You have to surprise me into it or I don't know. That's, you know what? But you gave the correct answer and that's what really matters. Uh, so that's 12,000 points you get for that one. Yeah. <laughs> One of the hardest parts of becoming Catholic is listening to people say amen. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, I know my confirmation saint is St. Augustine. Ah, well, there you go. Very good. Very good. Very good, yes. Uh, fa- fa- Father Kyle, Facebook or Twitter? Uh, Facebook. I have a Facebook account. I don't have anything to do with Twitter, so I'm going to go with Facebook for that. That is probably better for your blood pressure. Okay. Father Kyle's it's, rarely on Facebook. In that's, fact. True, that's true. Considering I stay off the Facebook aside from church, it's even better for my blood pressure. Yeah. Uh, Father Matt, since it is September, St. Michael or St. Gabriel? Oh, gosh. Um, well, that's hard to say. I, I may, maybe um, St. Michael has the cooler looking icon. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'll maybe go with with, with St. Michael, although then, you know, to, just to balance that off, I mean, there's innumerable fantastic paintings of the Annunciation, so I'm really pretty torn, but well, for the sake of brevity, I'll go <laughs> with St. Michael. It's a, it's a fair explanation. We'll give you uh, 3,000 points and a, and a pack of bubble gum for that one. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, all right. So, uh, despite all of the point values I just gave out, somehow the game is uh, totally tied. Um, it makes no sense, but you know, there we are. But fortunately, I have a bonus tiebreaker, and anybody can buzz in and answer this one. Okay. So this one is for the whole game. All right. Everybody ready? This is important. Here we go. Deontology. Or Dion Warwick. Uh, deontology. Are Are you sure? I mean, Dion Warwick. Uh, 
sang some pretty good songs. <laughs> I was I was a middle school deontologist. Yeah, I may have moved on to virtue ethics, but I'm still going to pick it in the this or that if virtue ethics isn't the other choice. Okay. Well, well perhaps perhaps if in between your your beautiful daughter pulling your hair, you could explain to us what deontology is. Well, this is like the trying to explain objectivism while standing on one leg, deontology while a baby attacks my, my face. Uh, deontology you know, is an understanding of ethics that's rule-based rather than outcome-based, as in utilitarianism, where you know every time you consider a, a particular situation, you want to consider what the rule governing that situation is, which is not going to be as sensitive to kind of little twiddlings of the variables of, oh, I've put more people on the trolley track now. You know, I learned about it through Immanuel Kant, who had a very good rule system, which was at its heart, whenever you act, act as though you were making a universal rule for the world. So there's no special treatment for you in particular. The categorical imperative is what uh, Kant's approach is called. And it's you know, pretty good as far as it goes, though falls short of, you know, a fully robust Christian ethics where we are not kind of simply trying to ascertain the rules, but are trying to uh, respond in love to, you know, goodness itself that has reached out to us in the incarnation and offered us the chance to be in relationship with him. I, I have a friend who um, uh, fancies himself an atheist uh, for various reasons that I don't believe, um, but uh, he... Uh, <laughs> He, he, he gives the lie away when he occasionally will talk about the categorical imperative as if it were a person. You know, like he's got to do something. He goes, ah, darn you, categorical imperative for... <laughs> like, who are you talking to? Oh, man, this to? sounds like me, you know, uh, like 10 years ago. Right? So I have high hopes for your friend. There, there you go. Can I also just say that uh, this is how my brain works. I spent a... a far larger period of time this evening than i should have trying to decide if it was funnier to pair deontology with dion warwick or deo by harry belafonte <laughs> i'm hoping i made the right choice oh i'm glad we we got to hear your thought process a little bit yeah um, a thousand well, points to father jonathan there you go. Uh, well, and I appreciate that. Uh, and so, obviously, the winner of the evening's game, uh, Beatrice, by a mile. She's, you know. Very... By a nose, I believe, and it's my nose that she's grabbing and trying to eat. She, she looks surprised. She would say, oh, me? I've, I've won? That's right. She's <laughs> contemplating the categorical imperative as she steals your nose. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you uh, to, to both of you for uh, for being on the show. Um, anything you want to plug real quick or, or say before you uh, you are whisked away into the night? Yeah, happy to drop a plug. Thanks so much for having us on once more. Great to be uh, great to be a many times recurring guest. Uh, we've all lost count of, uh, <laughs> of our appearances here. But uh, for, for listeners that are interested in checking out what I do, you can follow me on Twitter at Alexi Sargent, where you'll see some of my writing posted. And if you're interested particularly in game design, follow my game design handle at Cloven Pine Games. So that's at Cloven Pine Games on Twitter. And you can also find Cloven Pine Games on Itch.io, 
which is a online store for, uh, for mostly video games, but there's a tabletop game community there as well. And I've got a couple tabletop game PDFs available for free or very reasonable prices on my itch.io store, Cloven Pine Games. And I'm also very happy to be here with all of you. And you can find me at lealabresco.com for my writing. And if you were looking for a trichotomy instead of Twitter or Facebook, consider tinybookclub.substack.com, my newsletter for not being on social media, but discussing interesting short articles with folks in a more refined setting. There you go. Very good. Very good. Actually, I guess, you know, the answer to that Facebook slash Twitter uh, dichotomy could have been Goodreads, I suppose. Um, but, uh, you know, I didn't think of that until just now. Um, well, thank you, uh, Alexi and, and Leah and Beatrice for being on the show. And I know you guys have got to go. So we'll uh, we'll see you. We'll see you again soon. OK, absolutely. Thanks for having us. All right. Good night. Good night. Okay, well, uh, that's going to do it for our program this time out. Uh, we invite you, as always, to uh, check out the program at godandcomics.com. You'll find some links there, and you can listen to the, listen to the show again or, or download it there. Um, we are subscribable through uh, whatever your favorite podcast uh, service is, uh, including iTunes. And uh, if you are getting us through iTunes, we would really love it if you would give us a rating or a review because it helps other people to find the show. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right this minute, is by Father Paul Wheatley, who has concluded after many years of studying the early church fathers that he could probably take all of them in an arm wrestling contest. Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michigan. I'm Father Matt Stromberg. I'm Father Kyle Thompson.